Good morning, City Church. Hey, it is such a joy and an honor uh, to be kicking off Sunder, Sun, Sunder? Summer Sundays. Tried to combine those. It doesn't work. Just, we're just uh, shopping this out together, you know. But anyways, um, it is really a genuine pleasure and honor to be here with you this morning. It's an honor, number one, because I get to talk to adults on Sundays when I talk to y'all. Not that I don't like talking to my students, wherever y'all are at in the room today. Um, I do, but I do spend the vast majority of my ministry time uh, talking to students, whether that's at home because I have two teenage daughters or whether it's on a Wednesday night from about 5.30 to 9.30. I'm with teenagers um, every single Wednesday, right? Or um, all the multiple text conversations and phone calls that I take um, throughout the course of the week, they are generally with teenagers teenagers and so uh, helping them with a breakup or whatever it might be. So when I say that it is a genuine pleasure to be talking with you city church adults, I truly mean that, okay? Um, and, and it's doubly special today because today is Summer Sundays. We are just coming off of last week, the end of a, a really amazing series here at, at City Church and, um, and Summer Sundays, what that means for us that get to come up on this stage and speak is that it's pretty loose guidelines for us. We don't have a series that we're walking through. Basically, my one rule is don't be heretical. And, and, and you get to speak on just about whatever you want. So it's doubly special for that reason. And it's triply special this week because we are coming off of what was just a week that we spent at church camp, that I got to spend at church camp. Yeah, yeah, um, with our city youth. And guys, we took 19 kids. And I want to take just a moment. I'm going to take the next probably 5 to 8 to 15 minutes to brag on city youth, man. Um, we did. We took 19 students to camp this year. And um, it is just a joy to watch those 19 students and about 1,000 more just like them going after God with all that they have, man. Um, in that one-week span that we just experienced, three of my young men that are a part of City Youth came to me with a, a, a specific call on their lives to vocational ministry, and that's worthy of applauding, right? Two of, those, two of those are within the context of the local church, and one of those is global missions. And so that's even something more to celebrate. Um, and so um, it's been exciting. And all 19 of the students that we took to church camp all had an experience with God that is going to help shape and guide their future for years to come. And that is a beautiful thing as a, as a guy who just loves next-gen ministry to witness and to experience. Man, City Youth is just... We We've got this wild concoction of, of teenagers that we've got this beautiful concoction, a mixture of sweet, salty, um, quiet, loud, put together, a little bit disturbed that just somehow seems to work. And they know it's true. That's why they're laughing. Um, but it just seems to work. Think back to um, when you were a child and you went to your favorite fast food restaurant. Does anybody remember the fountain machines? What did we all do as a kid? Just <laughs> And we made what we call a suicide. As an adult, I now know that that is a mixture of very strong alcoholic beverages that will mess you up. Um, not by experience, um, but, but um, I needed to make that disclaimer known because I do have students in the room. But, but as a kid, I knew a suicide as just like mix every drink in the fountain station up and, and let's see what we got. Most of the time it was disgusting because when you mix Dr. Pepper, Coke, uh, Orange Fanta, and root beer, that just doesn't hit right. But every once in a while, 
while, you would come up with a mixture that, ju- that did hit right and, 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 and it was magical and you thought you might actually be on to something. That's city youth, guys. On paper, um, we don't make sense. But, but for some reason, this mixture of students that we have at City Church in our youth ministries, it just hits a little bit different than any other uh, student ministry that I've ever had the opportunity of leading. And it's been one of my greatest joys and honors to lead them. They have just such a wonderful community. Again, on paper, they don't look like they make sense, but, but they just have this beautiful community. They have love for one another. They have compassion for one another. In fact, in a moment, I'm going to make the argument that, that our students, both the city kids and city youth, they need to see us as adults with an alive and active, vigorous faith. But the, the truth of the matter is, is I have learned so much from watching our students just live life together with one another. And it, again, it's been one of the great honors and joys of my life. So anyways, I have um, spent the vast majority of my life in next-gen ministries. I had about a four- or five-year stint of my 17 I think it's been 17 years that I've been in, in ministry now. It's a long time. But, um, but, but I had a four or five-year break where I was doing adult ministry, like lead pastoring and church planning. And in my, in my darkest times, um, I kind of wish I could get those four or five years back and give it, just give it to student ministry. But, but um, that's kind of a joke. I, I loved that season of life, and I learned a lot of lessons. But, but over the last couple of years, I have gone back to next-gen ministries, and it's been nearly my sole focus here at City Church whether that is our youth ministries or whether that's city families. I've I, I just put my focus back to uh, next-gen ministries. And one of my goals in student ministry has always been to help teenagers find their own unique relationship with a couple of things, their own unique relationship with Jesus Christ, their own unique relationship with Scripture, and their own unique relationship within the gathered body of Christ that we call the local church. And here's why, guys. It's because they're not just our future church. Teenagers and young kids, they're not just the future of the church. In a very real way, they are the now of the church. There are a couple of young men, again, that I took to camp that feel called to vocational ministry who could in a few very short years be leading this church or one like it. And I pray that that's the case. But if that is the case, then we as a church have to ask the question, what are we leaving behind for them to pick up? What are we leaving behind for this next generation that's coming just behind us to pick up? What example are we setting? What standard are we setting for them to follow? My point is this, man. Um, It feels like just... Three weeks ago, I was 18 years old, and I was on a, in a Wednesday night Bible study, and I'm now waking up, and I'm knocking on the door of 40, right? Time flies. And so they're not just the future of the church. They are the now of the church. What example are we setting? 
Are we the generation that's leading the church today as we look back at the generations that went before us and, and all the things that were lost or all the things that were missed? And as we, this generation that's leading the church now, as we're picking up the pieces and trying to put it all back together, are we simultaneously doing the job of looking out, gazing out onto the future of this next generation and asking the question, what does the church look like for them? Are we asking ourselves these questions? And if we're not, then church, we should be. We should be asking these questions. I so desperately don't want our generation to be the generation who failed to tell the story of God to the detriment of the next. I don't want that to be our story. I don't want that to be our legacy. I want us to build something. God wants us to build something that they can then build off of and take it further than we ever dreamt. Take God's kingdom further than we've ever dreamt of. That should be our heart. That should be our passion when we think about next gen in the church, within the walls of the church. What are we leaving behind for them? What are we leaving behind? Um, I, I think about this and you might be asking the question like, is that even possible? Is it possible for a generation to be lost? And I would say if you're looking at this from a global church viewpoint, then no, God's kingdom is going to always go forth. That train left the station on Pentecost and it's not going to stop. Like God's kingdom is always going to go forward. But I will say this, in the context of us and the local church, whether that's city church or churches around the United States or around the globe, my question is this, is that train that took off on Pentecost and is never going to stop, are we going to be on board that train? Is the next generation going to be on board that train that we are raising up or have we forgotten about them? We cannot forget about this next generation. I love giving myself over for long periods of time to, to Old Testament scripture. Um, it, it's just like the stories still fascinate me. I love reading about the heroes of faith, um, whether it's Moses or David, and you can just go on down the list. Um, and, and, and so I wanted to take us to the Old Testament today for just a moment for a case study on the things that I've been rambling about for the last few minutes. So if you have a Bible, you can go with me to Judges chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on talk notes. And if you don't want to bother getting your phone out, it's going to be on the screen behind me. So you can read this along with me. But I want to give you guys just a case study into what I've been talking about for the last few minutes. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become a thorn in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Tinmath Ares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaesh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And we got to ask the question, guys, what is happening in this moment? On the surface, it would look as though Israel had finally received the promised land and from this moment forth would seek to only serve the one true God. Joshua and his crew had made some mistakes, but nothing that they couldn't come back from, right? Like they'd made some mistakes, but it was nothing that they would not be able to come back from. It would seem as though God's people and his kingdom were now going to be the example for what kingdoms should look like across the globe. But but we find out that it only takes one generation, and that's not the case. That's not the case. How does a generation pass away who knew the works of God and what he did for them, only to give way for the next generation to arise who somehow happened to not know the Lord or the works he did for them on their behalf? And let's pause and think about this, because it's easy to look at that next generation and say, man, you fumbled it, you missed it. But, but, but my question is, what about the generation before? What, what, what did they do that was wrong? They did not continue to tell the story of God. Church, it's easy for us to look at this generation that's coming up behind our generation and think, what in the heck are you doing? But the real question is, what are we doing? What are we doing? How are we leading them? How does a generation pass who knew God, knew his works on their behalf, only to give way to a generation who hasn't a clue? I won't claim to have all the answers, but I think we can gain some insight from these people that we just read about. I think the answer could be that the previous generation, they got lazy. The thing that they needed faith for was realized. The pressure from the culture around them caused them to compromise. Complacency in worship set in, and they never got around to telling the story of how God rescued, redeemed, and established their kingdom, their people. And throughout the book of Judges, we see this happen over and over again. The people of Israel get in a bind. They forget God. They forget his story. They get in a bind. They cry out to God. God sends a helper. They come back to God, and complacency sets in. Compromise takes place. Man, they get lazy with worship, and before long, they get in a bind again, and history just keeps on repeating itself moment after moment after moment. So let's fast forward to our side of the cross and ask ourselves this question. Can this same thing happen to us today? And I think the answer is yes, absolutely, it can. We spent um, several weeks in a series at the end of last summer, August, September, walking through the final book that makes up the canon of Scripture in Revelation, John's, letters to, John's letter to the seven church, churches in Asia Minor. And in that letter, John has seven things that Jesus wants to bring before these seven churches, some complaints that Jesus has. 
to these churches some arguments that he wants to make. He wants to, 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 to bring them forth a few things. And, and there's none that's more famous than the one that's brought against this charge that's brought against the church of Laodicea. Most of us probably know this. Jesus looks at the church in Laodicea and he says, you're neither hot or cold. You're lukewarm. You're unsatisfying. I'm going to spit you out. We've all heard this, this, this charge brought against this church. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You see, this church and so many of the other churches that John was writing to, they had lost their zeal, their fervor, their hunger for the God who saves. They've lost their zeal. These churches had developed a type of faith that's not a faith at all. It's a faith I like to call an obnoxious type of faith. When God has called us as his people to be a people of intoxicating faith. Instead, they had an obnoxious faith. Intoxicating faith is way better than this not faith, obnoxious faith. And I know that feels like a kind of a, a does statement. It seems like a bit of a no-brainer. But is it really, though? This has been said from this stage a number of times, but we live in a very polarizing world, don't we? We live in like, just like, like everything says you've got to take a side. You've got to have a stance. You need to have something to say. And here's the thing. The church has to enter into those conversations. But, but, but what I see so often as I peruse social media or listen to the news or, or whatever or hear conversations even within the body of Christ, and when we do enter into these conversations that the world and our culture says that we have to have, I'm like, man, as the church enters into them and I hear what we're saying, I just start thinking to myself, can we not talk? Can we just not talk? Because so much of what we're saying is not Jesus. It's not his way. It's not his kingdom. It's not looking at it through the lens of his ways or his kingdom. But instead, it's looking at culture. And our words are coming out of our mouth from a, an opinionated point of view. Opinion on, like, just what I want, what I feel like I need. Opinion on our vain pursuits. Opinion on political leaning, whether that's right or left. It's not Jesus. It's obnoxious faith. Obnoxious faith is lazy, opinionated, it's old, it's stale. Obnoxious faith pursues people or pushes people toward the margin and even has the potential of pushing people away. This kind of faith is put on full display in churches across the globe on a weekly basis when our hearts burn for anything else other than Christ and Christ alone. When we glory in anything else but Christ and Christ alone. Obnoxious faith is wide and shallow. It has no substance or depth. It's loud and clanging like symbols, like the symbols Paul references in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's loud, but there's no melody. Churches that are full of obnoxious faith have lost their prophetic voice to speak into culture and to speak into the next generation. We've lost our prophetic voice. When we operate out of this idea of an obnoxious faith, not faith, we've lost our prophetic voice. How many of you are familiar with the story of the seven sons of Sceva found in Acts chapter 19? One of my favorite stories in all of scripture. 
It is so amazing. The Apostle Paul, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to give you like the Cliff Notes version of it. The Apostle Paul is doing some amazing things in the name of Jesus. Like people are grabbing his handkerchief and being healed. It is amazing what's happening. And these non-believing people start to see what's happening and they want in on the action. And, and some of those people were the sons of a high priest named Sceva. He has seven of these sons and they're walking down the street one day and they see a guy who's possessed by a demon or many demons, I don't really know, but, um, but, but they're like, hey, we're going we're gonna to do something about this demon-possessed guy. It seems like on the surface, like a good work that they're going to try to do, but, but it's all for them. It's all a show for them. They want some praise. They want some accolades. They want some glory in all of this. And so they look at this man and they tell him, in the name of Jesus Christ, who Paul proclaims, we bid you come out. And the demon-possessed man looks at them, and the demons actually say to, them, say to these seven sons of Sceva, Jesus we know, Paul we've heard about, but we don't know who the heck you are. Jesus we know, Paul we've heard about, we don't know who you are. And the best part of the story is that after the demons say that, it says that the man rushes the seven sons of Sceva, rips all their clothes off, and beats them up. So they have to walk the streets naked and bloodied all the way home and defeat um, but my point for this entire, of telling you this entire story is this. In a very real way, culture, the next generation, they're looking at our generation today, church. They're looking to see if our words line up with our actions. And they're looking at us and they're basing their judgment on us and on God by our word and our action. And I just feel like so often culture and the next generation is saying, Jesus we've heard about, or Jesus we know, and we, we've heard about this thing called the church, but who the heck are you? Who the heck are you? We've lost. Let's not lose our prophetic voice. Intoxicating faith, on the other hand, is alive. It's vibrant. It's alluring. And it has this way of drawing people towards it. There's this magnetic pull. Intoxicating faith has a way of convicting in the sweetest of ways. I want to tell you guys the story of Julie. Um, so I already mentioned a moment ago that we were at church camp all last week. My wife had to go partly because um, she's my wife and I needed a, a female sponsor and then partly because of the guilt that my daughters heaped on her um, to get her to go. Um, but it's really awesome at camp. We have, like, really nice new rooms for the guys to stay in. Uh, and the beautiful part of it all is, is the sponsors' quarters are separate from the students. So I don't have to smell stank feet and farts all day long and all night long. Um, there's two beds, a private bathroom. And because I was in my room all by myself, I had a nap bed and a, a good night go to sleep bed. Uh, it was great. I had my own bathroom. I could lock myself in and get away from the, the chaos for a little while. All the things. Rachel wasn't so lucky. There was a church in their quad that had brought too many female sponsors for rooms that they had. And so um, one of them ended up having to bunk with Rachel. She um, got the title of rec assistant for the week. And so she was kind of in and out a lot. But, but my point is Rachel had to share her room. And on the first night of camp, Monday night, I got to meet Rachel's roommate, Julie. And we sat down at a table together and we were eating our food because we even get to eat before the students. It's so amazing. Um, I basically don't really ever have to be with y'all. 
Um, <laughs> starting to think I want to do church camp more often. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, but we sat down at dinner, and, and Julie, we're just doing the pleasantries. Hi, I'm Bodie. Oh, it's awesome. You get to room with Rachel. And on my inside, I'm like, Rachel hates this. I'm sorry. Um, but, but Julie just quickly got past the pleasantries, and she's like, let's get deep. And she asks, like, how long have you guys been coming to church camp? And Rachel and I, like, we are not rookies. We did this for 10 years, and now I'm back. So this is my 12th year taking students to camp. And so, like, like we're, we're not new to this. This is, this is old news for us. We're, we're not rookies. Follow us. We'll, we'll show you the ropes uh, there, Miss Julie. Because she mentioned that this was her first year coming to camp. And then she drops this on us. I've been a believer in Jesus Christ for two years. And then she began to tell us her story, how God rescued her out of addiction to drugs and homelessness and walking the streets of Tulsa on a daily, on a day-to-day basis, never knowing where she was going to lay her head down, not knowing where her children were, all the things. It was just this unbelievable story. And then she's like, but now I can't get enough of him. When somebody, nobody had ever told me all of my life until two years ago that there was this guy named Jesus and that he loves me. And she was like, when I heard it, I just couldn't help but go, yes, I want him. And I've been on fire for him ever since. I lead a, a, a ministry that goes out and helps homeless women find work and find housing. And I do all of these amazing things. And I'm just sitting there going, I have been in ministry for 18 years and I, I don't know that I've ever done any of those things at least not on that level. I mean, it was convicting, but it was sweet. And throughout the week, I could not help but be drawn to watch Julie as she interacted with all the students at the camp. I I couldn't help but be drawn to her when she would sit down for breakfast, lunch, or dinner and bow her head to give God thanks for the meal that she was about to eat. It was intoxicating just to watch her. Intoxicating faith is alive and it's magnetic. Obnoxious faith forgets how we got here. It fixates on the mundane things of this life as the driving force for all that we do. And by mundane, I don't mean raising the kids or going to work. By mundane, I mean if you put it over worship and servitude to the God who saves. Intoxicating faith remembers the past for what it is, rejoices in the now for what it is, or it remembers the past for what it was. It rejoices in the now for what it is. And has this childlike anticipation for what's to come. It's full of hope. It's full of zeal. And so church, I want to ask you today, when was the last time you felt like your faith was like that? When was the last time that you felt like, man, I'm just on fire for God? When was the last time that you felt like your faith was magnetic, that it drew others to you and not really to you, but to the God you serve? Maybe the last couple of years have robbed you of that. We have walked through just a hellish last couple of years. It has been insane. And sadly, so many in the church have walked through that alone. They haven't walked through this the past couple of years in community. So maybe the last couple of years have robbed you of that intoxicating, magnetic kind of faith. Maybe, maybe the years have compiled and they've turned in to decades without you ever giving a thought to the subject matter at hand. And you have no idea where you even stand. I want to say a couple of things to us today. Number one is this. We have to fan faith into flame. So many of you feel like your flame is dead 
Like the fires have burnt out inside of you. Like you are running on empty. There's nothing to give. And, and God is a million miles away. And I'm here to encourage you today to say that's simply not true. That's simply not true. I'm going to take my family camping in the next like, couple of weeks. And I know some of you are probably thinking, why in the actual heck would you go camping in the hottest season of the year for us? Here's why. First of all, I just like to camp. Secondly, we're going to put our tent on a bluff that's about 10 foot above a spring-fed creek. And so every morning we just unzip the tent and we leap off into about 8 to 10 feet of water. And it's amazing. Like we just stay in water all day long. That's why we're going camping. We love creeks. And so, um, but, but here's one thing that I know when I go camping in a few weeks is that at night, no matter how hot it is, it's going to be a million degrees outside, but my kids are going to want a campfire. And I'm not going to lie, I'm going to want a campfire too. I just love campfires. And I've built a bunch of campfires. And so we're going to build a campfire. We're going to gather sticks and dried grass and build a pit and everything. And we're going to set a fire. And all night long, we're going to sit around that fire and we're going to roast marshmallows. I don't know why. None of us eat them. But, but, but we, that's just what you do at a campfire. And so we're going to roast marshmallows. And we're going to tell stories, whether they're stories from my childhood or Rachel's childhood or scary stories that I make up that causes the kids not to sleep at night. It doesn't matter. We're going to tell all the stories, but eventually we're going to go to bed. We're going to go into our tents. I'm going to pray that I have electricity for a fan, and we're going to go to bed. And while we're in bed, here's what I know is going to happen to that campfire. It's going to slowly burn itself down. And at some point in the morning, I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to want a cup of coffee, and I'm going to need to boil some water to get that cup of coffee. And I'm going to unzip my tent, and I'm going to go out and look at that campfire, and it's going to look like it's dead and gone, nothing but white ash. But because I am 40 years old and I've built, or almost anyways, why age yourself? you got a few more months. Um, but because I've built a lot of campfires in my life, I know that that fire is not actually dead, right? Like all I have to do is grab a few more little bundles of dry grass, get down on my knees, put that there, and then grab a couple of small sticks and a little bit bigger log, and then take my hands and my mouth and do this. And eventually smoke's going to start to billow. And eventually flames are going to start to lick the air. And before long, I'm going to have a fire again. Why? Because the embers are still red hot. And in the same way for us spiritually, if you feel like your fire is out, you're, the embers are still hot. We need to fan that faith into flame. But here's the thing. It's not our breath. We don't blow on that faith and hope that our fire ignites. No, we have to pray to God to breathe on us. Rachel talked about this on Pentecost Sunday, but it's that ruach, that hakalugi sound, ruach, um, the, the breath of God. We have to pray that God's breath would breathe on us and in us and ignite the embers to flame again. I didn't say this in first service. I'm going to say it to you guys right now because we have extra time. It's our last service of the day. But don't be defeated if that flame looks different. Flames always look different. Not, there's not one made the same. They might go this way. They might go that way. They might go that way. But guess what? They're all trying to get up. Right? They're all trying to get up. 
and that's what matters. So, so maybe you feel like your faith is dead and you want what was, don't want what was, want what is coming. I don't know who did that, but yeah. Want what's coming. We have to fan faith into flame. Can we go to scripture really quick? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Paul writes this to Timothy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self Control. Part of the gift that the Apostle Paul is telling his young apprentice Tim to fan into flame is absolutely the leadership gifting that Paul saw on Timothy, which is why he put him in charge of a church. But I would argue that that's not the biggest part of the gift that the Apostle Paul is pleading with Timothy to fan into flame. It's this gift of faith in Jesus Christ, the one who came to seek and to save the lost. A faith that was handed down from him, from his grandmother to his mother, and now resides in Timothy. God is saying, fan that faith, fan that gift of the gospel into flame. We have to fan faith into flame because of number two. And number two is this, the next generations need us. They need you. They need me. The next generation needs us. Again, if we can go back to Paul's letter to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Timothy's faith was generations in the making. His faith was generations in the making. We live in a very me-centric world, a world that says get yours to the detriment of everybody else around you. But when was the last time that we as the church stopped and thought about legacy? When was the last time that, that we stopped and put any ounce of thought into legacy? What it looks like for the next generations coming up behind us? What are we leaving behind for them to pick up? And this just isn't just a plea to moms and dads, children's workers and youth workers or church leadership. This is a plea to the body of Christ. Again, they need us. This next generation needs you. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, how then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And I get that Paul was speaking to the church in Rome, a Gentile church, speaking, talking to them about the people of Israel. But I feel like the point is valid. I feel like there is a valid point here. How will the next generation call on the one who they have not believed? How can they believe in the one they haven't heard about? And how can they hear without someone preaching, whether in word or deed? My generation, listen to me. City Church, listen to me. We are the sent ones sent to proclaim the excellencies of God to the next generation. It's our duty to raise them up, to set 
the standard. And so I say this, how beautiful are the feet of the moms and dads who are nightly praying over their children, who daily are speaking blessing over their lives and telling them the story of God's extravagant love for them. How beautiful are the feet of the 20-something in the room today who is setting the standard for what corporate worship truly looks like. How beautiful are the feet of the elderly couple who are willing to give out wisdom and truth and knowledge to the next generation without shame or guilt. How beautiful are the feet of the gathered body of Christ Lifting up the next generation and praying, God, will you use them in ways that we could have never dreamt of? How beautiful, how precious, how important. Church, it's far too important for us to miss it. We have to fan faith into flame because the next generation needs us. Would you stand with me this morning? In a moment, we're going to take communion together. You should have received some elements when you came in. A bit ago, we looked at the book of Judges as a case study for how it only takes one generation not proclaiming the goodness of God to see the next generation rise up who did not know him. And the, the, the book of Judges ends with some sobering words. We see the cycle repeated over and over again. Um, a falling away, a coming back, a falling away, a coming back. But it ends with these words. In those days, there was no king. There was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Those are sobering words, but church, can I tell you, we have hope today. The next generation that's coming up behind us and the generation after them, there's hope because we have a king and his name is Jesus. And our king set the standard. He said, come and do it my way, the way of sacrificial love, the way that leads to life. So there's hope for this next generation and the generations after. There's hope for you today. His name is Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his closest friends in a room and they began to eat the Passover meal. And it says as they were reclined at table that Jesus took bread and he lifted it up to heaven. He blessed it and he broke it and he passed it around saying, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Let's take the body of our Lord and Savior today. It says in the same manner after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup represents my blood, blood of a new covenant. No longer do you need blood from bulls or, or rams or goats, doves or pigeons to cover your sins. My blood is sufficient to wash your sins away. And we take the cup together this morning. Take a few 
just a few seconds to thank Jesus for what he did. Jesus, we thank you that your body was broken so that we could be made whole. We thank you that your blood was shed so that our sins would be washed away so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. You took on guilt, shame, sin. You died a death we deserved so that we could live life with you as the children of God forever. May your praises ever be on our lips for that very reason. If you, had never, if you never did another thing, that would be enough. But we know you do so much more. Thank you for your body broken and your blood poured out. Jesus, it's in your name. We pray, amen. Church, this would normally be the time that I end, but we're not going to end just yet. I can't get up here and talk to you guys about a subject matter that I'm all too passionate about, next generations, and, and not give us an opportunity to practice what we just listened to, what we just sat in. And so... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my boy Marcellus a little bit more time to shine on the keys back here. He's so good at what he does. And what I want us to do is I want us to start thinking about city kids. I want us to start thinking about city youth. I want us to start thinking about the son or daughter, the brother or sister, the niece or nephew, the grandson, granddaughter, great-grandson, great-granddaughter. And can we take just a few minutes corporately to lift them up to God, to pray over the next generation? I'm going to give each of you time to just think of those people and lift them up to God. And then I'm going to come back up and pray to close us out.
God in heaven, we plead with you for the generations to come. For the ones just behind us. And for the ones that will follow them. Father, would you set their hearts ablaze for the things of God. God, I pray for unique creativity over them, for imaginations to run wild, and Lord, for unique, ex unique expressions of worship to flow from them. God, I pray that the generations to come, God, would be the generations that usher in your kingdom like, they've like the world has never experienced before. Father, I pray that through them revival would come, not just to this city, not just to this state or this nation, but the world, God. That there would be a renewal of the things of God and a passion for you, Father, and a passion to proclaim the name of Jesus. God, I pray for us as a church today. God, that we would catch a vision for legacy, a vision for the next generation. God, that, that we could boldly say to those who are coming behind, you can follow me because I'm following Jesus. God, if there are spaces within our church, within our families, within our day-to-day -day lives, God, that are out of sync or out of step with your call for us to lead them, then God, would you reorder our lives that we would see the main things as the main things. Yes, God, give us all a vision for legacy today, what we leave behind, because it matters. It so deeply matters. And God, we know that systems and structures are, are, are great, but no system, no structure can ever do it on its own. We need you. It's a work that we cannot do on our own. So Holy Spirit, would you invade this space? Would you fill us with all that we need to lead love and guide this next generation and the generations to come? God, it's for your glory. It's for your fame that we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for listening to me for a few minutes. Um, I'm going to go ahead and invite the prayer team down right quick. If you need prayer for anything, we've got some lovely people, whether you're an elder here at the church or um, a part of our prayer team on staff here at the church. Um, you come on down to the front now. Um, if you need prayer for anything, these wonderful people would love, love, love to pray with you. Um, just a couple of quick reminders. If you're new with us today, um, 
yeah, we want to we want to say hi, give you a free gift right across the lobby in the welcome room. One of our pastors will be there uh, to welcome you, to greet you. Um, I would normally end with our mission statement right now, but there's one more disclaimer I need to throw out there. Tomorrow is Fourth of July, right? Um, so next Sunday, come back with all ten fingers. Dill, all right. Hey, now let's end with our mission statement, City Church, and go live it out wherever. You